Welcome to this week's edition of Honestly Speaking with Tara, where telling the truth in a time of universal deceit is a revolutionary act. Well, the 4th of July just passed. Hope everyone had a great 4th of July. I know we had an okay one. I mean, the 4th is always a good time, but I was here in Washington. We couldn't travel because my husband, like I mentioned before, is in training. So we kind of had to endure the crazy weather and the, um, the fireworks turned out to be not that great, despite all the hype and hoopla from the president. They, if you lived in Washington, any of you listeners, if you guys live in DC, you know that you couldn't see shit. I tweeted it out. It was kind of a disappointment. I love fireworks. And, um, after the first two minutes, the smoke was so bad, we couldn't see anything. So that was our, our 4th of July. But, um, I hope everybody else enjoyed their independence day. Uh, I'm going to talk a minute in a minute about Trump's display, but just to preview what's coming up in this episode, my guest this week is former federal prosecutor Mimi Roca. She spent 16 years with the Southern District of New York, and she was in some of the, the badass units over there. <laughs> she was in the sex crimes unit. She was in the um, organized crime unit. She's no joke. She's got a lot of experience in prosecuting some pretty bad hombres. And um, given this information with this Jeffrey Epstein case that broke over the weekend and that's going on right now, oh my God, uh, the, uh, wait till you listen to this. You, you People, this, this case is so repugnant, your blood is going to boil. But I'm glad that it's now being relitigated because this guy got away with sexually abusing hundreds of girls, hundreds, not just a couple dozen. They're saying it could be over 200 that we know of. So I, unbelievable. So stay tuned for Mimi Roca. She's going to talk a bit about the legal side of this, what's happening. And I'm going to talk a little bit about the history of Jeffrey Epstein and his ties to Donald Trump. And the Russian mob and uh, Bill Clinton and some others. Yeah, this Jeffrey Epstein guy is a piece of shit. So um, I'm going to talk a little bit about that. It's just uh, amazing what wealth and power and money buys you in this country. Um, oh. So anyway, I'm going to get to that in a little bit. But uh, yeah, 4th of July, Trump's salute to America if you listened to last week's episode, you know that I was pretty fired up about this this uh, 4th of July hijacking by the president. And I prayed for rain. <laughs> I was being a jerk. I was being petty. And I was like, I want it to pour so that it can rain on Donald Trump's parade. That does not make me un-American. It doesn't mean I hate 4th of July. It meant that I didn't want Trump's salute to himself to be, you know, to go off without a hitch. Well, I got my partial wish. It did rain like hell on 4th of July in the D.C. area. I mean, it was torrential downpours for a while. But there was one little window right when Trump was coming on where things cleared up enough for the event to go forward. Now, it still drizzled throughout most of it. So if any of those, any of you who watched it saw that the plexiglass around him, protective glass around him was full of streaks of water full of water. And it wasn't a great visual. It really wasn't. But there were thousands of people standing out there in the rain to worship Donald Trump and, you know, claim to be great patriots. And you know what? The flyovers were cool. I I love flyovers. I don't mind those. 
But it was just the whole attitude behind this, that Donald Trump was just really getting off on the idea of showing off our military strength, which we don't need to do. Most military leaders in this country shy away from those kinds of civilian military parade type displays for that reason. It's not necessary. It's different than an air show or something like that. That's different because that's celebrating our military in a way that's non-political. But this, but Trump made it political just with the way he went about it. Now, the speech itself wasn't political, thank God, but it was really weird If you guys follow my friend Tom Nichols, he's a friend of the show and um, he's at Radio Free Tom on Twitter. You should follow him. He's hilarious. He is a prolific never Trumper. He is a foreign policy expert. He's fluent in Russian. So he understands a lot of the nuances when it comes to Russia, what they're doing, our foreign policy. He teaches at the Naval War College. Super smart guy. And he's hilarious. You should, you should, he wrote an interesting op-ed in the US, in USA Today about his thoughts on Trump's speech. And also he was able to monitor Russian media because he speaks Russian. So he understood how the Russians were mocking the US and Trump for his, his um, weak military parade. They were like, oh, if you want to see how a military parade is done, we can show you (laughs) with our wrinkled uniforms and old tanks or whatever they said. Shut shut up, Russia. You know what? We don't really care what you think because we're a free society and you're not as much as Trump would love to be like Putin. So that's why it bothered me. It just bothered me. The whole thing was just, ugh. And when I saw the images of, of the tanks in front of the podium there where the VIPs were sitting, I just, it just made me, made my stomach turn. It's just not an image. I want to see in, in, with an American president, I just don't, that's not on a military base. That's not doing something war related. I don't know. It, it bugged me. Just like the pictures of the, of the, um, uh, fighting the Bradley fighting vehicles and other things kind of being going through the streets of DC on their way to the mall. I just, uh, I didn't like it. I didn't like it. It bugged me, but it's over now. Thank God it's behind us. I hope no one does that again. I hope this isn't the beginning of that. And like I said, unfortunately the fireworks were quite the disappointment here in Washington. No one could see them because there was a temperature inversion going on outside. Anyone who follows weather things, I'm fascinated with weather. I'm kind of a weather nerd. But there was a temperature inversion, which also happens when fog is around. That's what happens with fog. So normally when you get higher in the atmosphere, it gets cooler. But with the temperature inversion, it's the air gets warmer as you go up in the, in the atmosphere for a little while there. And it creates like a almost like a seal. So because there was warmer air in the atmosphere than what was on the ground, all the smoke from the fireworks just sat there. It had nowhere to dissipate to. So that made for a really cloudy, shitty fireworks display after the first two minutes, literally, literally. So, and then DC was like shrouded in this smoke from, and the sulfur smell from the fireworks because of how many there were, right? There were more fireworks donated from Gucci and Phantom Fireworks on top of the original fireworks display that had already been pre-planned. The additional fireworks, the additional 15 minutes of fireworks that Trump added created this smoke bomb in Washington. It was a disaster. People were tweeting pictures of their neighborhoods like completely engulfed in smoke. It was horrible. 
So anyway, so that's that. Um, what else did we do over the fourth? Oh, my husband and I finally got a chance to catch up on some movies because we'd been busy and we don't like to go to the movies on the weekends because of the crowd. So we try to go during the week. Well, we were able to sneak in a movie or two and we saw Spider-Man because we're big Marvel comic fans and it was great. I love Tom Holland as, as Spider-Man. I like this, this iteration of him. Um, I also liked the Tobey Maguire version and I liked Andrew Garfield, actually. A lot of people were critical of that, but I liked those. They were a little darker, a little more meaty with the characters than this one. You know, Tom Holland's a little lighter, but it's more in the Marvel Universe vein. So that's kind of cool. But um, I thought it was really good. So if you haven't seen it yet, go see it and make sure you stay for the mid credits and post credits. There are two scenes you should see and they're significant. Not giving anything away, just telling you to stay if you haven't seen Spider-Man yet. We also saw Dark Phoenix, the which is supposed to be the closer of this X-Men, um, you know, the, the X-Men series since 2000. And I, got, I have to be honest, I love X-Men. Of course, I love um Wolverine and Hugh Jackman, who after Logan, that was the end of his character arc, which was a really powerful movie. If you're into, if you're into Marvel stuff, Logan was phenomenal. I I admit I choked up a little at the end, but, um, that should have been it. That should have been the closing chapter. Not this dark Phoenix one. I thought, you know, I heard that, that the movie sucked. There were a lot of people who were critical of it. And I thought, ah, well, let's go see for ourselves. Well, they were right. They were right. The Jean Grey character is such a fascinating, complex one. And there are so many storylines from it. And and we've been flirting with the Phoenix part of her character since, I think, the second X-Men back in 2002, right? And they never really fully developed it. And they don't do it again in this one. It was crappy. I didn't like it. Uh, I don't, I don't want to give, give away any spoilers, but I thought it was a pretty shitty end to that pretty awesome um, X-Men run. I liked the new iteration of those with um, James McAvoy as the younger Charles Xavier and Jennifer Lawrence as Raven. Like, the, I thought that was a cool way to bring the franchise back and give it some freshness, but they ended it on a crappy note. So boo to Dark Phoenix. Stranger Things, I am a fan. I don't know who else is, but I am a huge fan of Stranger Things. Third season started on July 4th. I started to binge watch it over the weekend. I got through six episodes out of the eight. I know, might as well just watch the last two, but I couldn't because I started binge watching it on Sunday and it got to be like 10 o'clock and I needed to start prepping for the Epstein episode for what we're talking about because there's so much information. So I said, okay, and I did an an earlier interview with Mimi Roca, so I could not really mess around because I would have been up till one o'clock in the morning if I just watched it all the way through. I thought was irresponsible. So I have two more episodes to go. Probably by the time this airs, I will have watched the whole season because it's so addictive and it, I just, it's addicting. The show is great. This season was a little slower to get going, but, um, still good nonetheless, especially for gen, if you're a generation Xer, like I am all the eighties references, the soundtrack, the clothes, the mall scenes, like I, I'm reliving my youth And I think that sense of nostalgia is partly why Stranger Things has this like cult following of of people my age 
because it allows us, we all remember kind of our nerdy, well, I was, I was cool, but I was also nerdy too. Our group of nerdy friends and the stuff we used to do and just the stuff that we were into in the, in the mid eighties, it was just, you know, in a more innocent, easier times back then. So shout out to all my fellow stranger things fans. Um, that's my, that's my Netflix show for now. And also I'm still into Handmaid's Tale on Hulu, but see the difference is you got to wait every week for Handmaid's Tale. It's like a real series. So I had to wait till every Wednesday for that. I know it's another intense show, but anyway, so that's uh, my little social update on what, what happened in the last week over the 4th of July and some of those things. Oh, two more things. So everyone who knows me knows that I love musical theater and live music. So if you follow me on Instagram in particular, I usually post a lot more social things, not as many political things on Instagram kind of just show a different side of me. So people know that I'm like a normal person. (laughs) And, uh, I, last week I had the opportunity to see Hugh Jackman live. He's doing a one man show, uh, concert tour where, well, I shouldn't say one man show. He's the, he's the headliner. He's got, you know, an orchestra and dancers and stuff. It's a whole production. It's almost like a Vegas show. And if, for those who don't know, Hugh Jackman is more than just Wolverine. He started off in musical theater. He has a love of musical theater and he can sing his ass off and he can dance. He even tap dances. Yes, Wolverine sings and tap dances. Amazing. My husband knows that my Hollywood crushes are Idris Elba and Hugh Jackman. And so he let me go to the show by myself. He goes, look, spend more money, spend the money you would spend on two tickets and get one and get a better seat. So that's what I did and I had a blast. I was like, I don't know there. It was at the Capital One Arena, which is the main arena in Washington. So, I mean, it was packed. It was sold out and he put on a great show. So kudos to to Hugh Jackman. He's just a good and decent human being, loves his wife, Deb, who he's been married to for 20 plus years, did a little tribute to her and stuff. And it was very cute. He was cool. He's a Tony winner, people. Hugh Jackman won a Tony. Yes. So that's my shout out to Hugh Jackman. It was kind of a theme. And then we went to see Earth, Wind & Fire the next day, which was fantastic. They always put on an amazing live show. They've been together for almost 50 years. Just good quality music. So, and that, oh, it poured rain there too. It was at an outdoor venue called Wolf Trap, which is our favorite outdoor venue here in the Northern Virginia area. They allow you to picnic. You can bring in wine and there's a lawn area and there's a seated area. And um, it freaking poured <laughs> But we had seats underneath too, so we were able to go get dry and go underneath and we're pretty prepared. We're professional picnickers. So we were prepared, some other people weren't. It was that wasn't fun for them, but shout out to Wolf Trap. I love them. And uh, shout out to their PR folks over there for ta- always taking care of me. So thank you, thank you. Okay, what else? Let's move on to Justin Amash. Something else that came out over the 4th of July holiday was um, Republican, now former Republican Justin Amash, decided to quit the party. And he, you may recognize that name because he is the lone congressman who came out and made a lone Republican congressman before he quit the party, who came out and um, made a case for impeachment. And he's right. He's been, I've agreed with that. He's more of a libertarian, Justin Amash. I don't agree with him on everything, especially foreign policy. However, he is an astute constitutional scholar. 
He understands the separation of powers. He understands the existential threat that Donald Trump poses to our constitutional republic. And he finally said, the hell with it. After the Mueller report came out and he had time to digest it, he was like, oh, no, hell no. This guy needs to be impeached. <laughs> and he went ahead and, and made quite the compelling case, which is the case that all Republicans should have been making, but they're too afraid to do. And he admitted that. And he wrote an op-ed in the Washington Post that was published on 4th of July, where he said he was claiming his independence from the Republican Party. He's now officially an independent. And um, if you haven't read his his uh, op-ed, I suggest you go and read it. It's in the Washington Post. You can just Google Justin Amash leaves GOP. It'll come up. And he made, he made a lot of great points, but one of them, he said, quote, modern politics is trapped in a partisan death spiral. Yep. And I have to say, you know, I've struggled for uh, two years now since the election of Donald Trump with what to do about staying in the Republican Party, still identifying myself as a Republican. Now, I always say I'm a conservative first because that's true. The philosophy that I approach government and the role of government and things like that is still from a conservative perspective. That is very different than than what what this Donald Trump Trumplican crap is going on. That is not conservatism by any means. And I think one of these episodes, I'm going to bring on someone who's a stalwart in the conservative movement. And we're going to talk about that a little bit because a lot of people ask, they're like, can you define what it means to be a conservative and or, or a Republican outside of the Trump stuff? And I think that that's a worthy discussion to have. But I'm not going to have it today because there's too many other things going on. But Justin Amash um, talks about that and the partisanship. And he's right. You know, I don't know what to do. I, I, I struggle with this all the time because the party is not the party that I know or grew up in. But I also know that we need to have two functioning political parties in this country because that's the way our system is designed now, even though our founding fathers warned us against factions, which is essentially parties, and what that would create. The founding fathers frowned upon that idea, but by human nature, you're going to gravitate toward people of like mind and interest. And that eventually happened. And here we are with the two party system now. And it's just hard. I don't know. I don't know. But Justin Amash made a lot of great points. And he was on State of the Union with uh, Jake Tapper over the weekend as well. And that's something I found interesting, which I know to be true, because when I'm with my own friends in Washington or we're at the Capitol Hill Club or friends of mine who are still Hill staffers who will who work for members who will remain nameless, they tell me that Republican elected members, most of them know that Donald Trump is a shit show. They know he's a lunatic. They know he's a liar. They know he's dishonest. They know that he's immoral. They know he can't be trusted. All the things that we know that are on display every day about Donald Trump, they know it but they're too afraid to speak out in public because they're afraid they'll get primaried and they'll lose. And there is, you know, they want to keep their power. I still say they're cowards because no one, because they're continuing to enable him is why he's at 43% approval for God's sakes. 43%. Well, who are these 43%? I, I can't. But polling has recent polling did show that Joe Biden is beating Donald Trump by 10 points, 53-43, if the election were held today. And um, 
so Justin Amash, he said this on, on State of the Union. He said, um, he go there. He said there are lots of Republicans out there who are saying these things privately, but they're not saying it publicly. And I think that's a problem for our country. It's a problem for the Republican Party. It's a problem for the Democratic Party when people aren't allowed to speak out. People are elected to Congress with an oath to support and defend the Constitution, not an oath to support and defend one person, the president, or whoever happens to be from your own party. Amen, brother. I hear you. I don't know how many others are going to be as bold, but at least you are and good for you. Has to start somewhere. So best of luck to Justin Amash. He's running for re-election in Congress and um, has an independent. So let's see what happens. I really hope he wins. I really do. He's a... He's a good guy. Of course, Trump went after him, called him one of the dumbest members of Congress and disloyal, whatever. Shut up, Donald Trump. One thing Amash, Justin Amash is not, is dumb. Speaking of silly things, um, this Joe Biden, Kamala Harris busing incident is almost put to rest. But I will say that I'm so glad that Joe Biden finally gave a solid, strong speech in South Carolina over the weekend where he laid out his record on busing. He laid out the context of it. He laid out his civil rights accomplishments and how asinine it is to even question whether he is a civil rights supporter. So now he should have done that three weeks ago. So the issue hadn't festered as long, but better late than never at this point. It's because he got punched in the mouth at the de- at the uh, debate last week or a week and a half ago now that it woke him up. And sometimes that's what you need. So Joe Biden did an excellent job. It looks like he's getting back into his form. You know, I've always said for the last couple of weeks, he's a little rusty. He hasn't done this in a while. He's been sitting around giving speeches and stuff. And, you know, he hasn't campaigned in a while. So he's a little rusty. And that rust is starting to shake off now. And I want to make a point about people who are saying that Kamala Harris can be a fighter and people saw that, oh, she can take on Trump and started to question whether Joe Biden's a fighter or whether Joe Biden can take on Donald Trump in a debate. Please. Joe Biden can handle Donald Trump without question. No one's ever questioned whether Joe Biden was a fighter. And he mentioned that during his speech in South Carolina. He talked about how his son talked about that and how, what a fighter he was. It was a really good speech. If you haven't seen it, you should go watch it. And the thing this that I'm going to say about this, Biden admitted that he was really blindsided by Kamala Harris's attack on him because it was so personal. And he thought that she was a friend of the family because she talked about her relationship with Bo Biden. And he finally admitted, like, I wasn't expecting it to come from her. Now, still no excuse. They should have been prepared. The campaign should have still been like, I don't care. You need to be prepared for this stuff. But to his credit, he admitted that he was caught off guard. Well, that's not going to happen with Donald Trump. That's the difference. So for the people who are saying, yeah, we like Biden, but we think Kamala can handle Trump. I mean, she probably could, maybe. But don't discount Joe Biden's ability to punch back because he's not going to be blindsided by Trump. He's plenty prepared for what, what he's, what he's going to throw at him. So that's a key difference. I think people need to take into consideration. 
Uh, he apologized also for the language that he used. If it was offensive to people, he apologized, which is what he just should have freaking done three weeks ago when this first came up. So I'm glad I brought this up during my appearances on CNN last week, trying to give some advice to the Biden campaign, not saying that they were listening to me, but maybe they were listening to me. I don't know. But it looked like Biden is starting to do some of the things that I suggested that he needed to do. <laughs> so I'm glad to see it. I don't want to take credit for it per se, but at least we're all on the same page as communications professionals, uh, what he needed to do and he's done it. So keeping an eye on Biden, see what, how well he does in the next couple of weeks, especially in the upcoming CNN debate at the end of the month in Detroit. Uh, what else? Um, I just want to say a couple things before I get into this Epstein case and then bring in, um, Mimi Roca. This whole thing going on with these kids in the immigration detention centers is um, really upsetting to me. And as someone who worked on immigration for several, several years when I was on Capitol Hill as a staffer, and for someone who is a staunch supporter of the Border Patrol, I did a lot of advocacy work for those guys. And the, the Border Patrol, they really are a, a, a fantastic agency made up of a lot of really, really good people. And it hurts my heart to see what's happening now. And I, I spoke to a border patrol agent who was a sector chief a couple weeks ago. And he was telling me, and he was in Arizona, not Texas, where most of these uh, detention center incidents are happening, but I guess they're happening all over. But he was telling me uh, that their mission is no longer to secure the border that their number one priority now is humanitarian and that's not their normal mission. He's been on the job for over 20 years and he said that he's never seen it like this before, that the, the priorities are throwing everything upside down for the border patrol and they're trying to do their best and that their detention centers are not designed to hold children or families. They're designed from back in the 90s and 80s um, to hold single men and only for a couple of days maybe a week, not for weeks at a time. And they just, they, they just don't have the capacity. Now, this is not, a, 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 um, not, I'm not making an excuse. I'm just letting you know that there are border patrol agents on the ground who are torn up about what's happening too. And they're being put in, in, in an impossible situation because of the policies of the Trump administration. They've exasperated the problem. They're uninterested in fixing it. And now you've got innocent kids who are paying the price. I don't care how you feel about immigration. You could be the biggest border hawk where you're like, you know, put the military on the border, shut the border down, blah, 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 whatever. Or you could be in open borders or like, let everybody in, whatever, wherever you are in the spectrum. I'm pretty tough on border security. However, I'm also compassionate. And these are children, okay? And this is the United States of America, and there is no excuse for these kids to be in, in squalid conditions like this. It's horrible, okay? We have enough money, we have the resources, and if the government can't get off its ass and get itself together through, through the bureaucratic mess, then let Catholic charities or the, the faith-based organizations come in there and help out. Let people, we, we need, I mean, we, we figure out ways to house people in clean and safe environments after a natural disaster. Why can't we figure out what to do properly with these children. There's no excuse. 
And I don't want to hear, don't believe Donald Trump gaslighting people saying everything's wonderful and it's like they're in Disneyland. Bullshit. No, it's not. There's a problem and they need to fix it. The Homeland Security Acting Secretary, Kevin McAleenan, tried to say, well, we have toothbrushes and things for them. It's not our fault if they don't use them. Stop it. You're talking about three-year-olds. Three and four-year-olds, these kids are, are, you know, seven, eight-year-olds, these kids are traumatized. They've been separated from their parents. We can argue why that happens or whether that's necessary or not, but that's what's happening. So we need to deal with what's actually happening and fix this because this is a disgrace and this is not the way we treat people in this country. Then Congress, get off your asses and pass a law that either helps to deport these people faster back to their own countries or do something to fix how long they can be detained or build tent cities or build facilities faster to to handle the influx. How about we reinstate the federal the um, foreign aid to the Northern Triangle countries to keep them in their own countries? How about we do that? Because to be honest, people, I know you're you know like, well, they're seeking asylum and yes and no. There has been tremendous abuse of our asylum system. There has been. And that's partially why there's a 900,000 case backlog. I'm sorry, but economic reasons are, it's not because you want to come to America for a better life because there's more economic opportunity. That's not a reason for asylum. It's not, that's not what asylum laws were for. Asylum was like people in Syria where their country's overrun with terrorists and people are being hung in the streets. Okay. So Claiming that your husband domestically abuses you in Guatemala is not a reason for asylum, to be granted asylum into the United States. I'm sorry. So that's, I'm just being honest about that. They, we need to figure out ways where a better system than what we have now. It's not fair to these children. It's not fair to these people. And um, it really falls on Congress. It does. They need to stop this now. It's not right. It's just not right. So that's my little diatribe on that. Now, this Epstein case, there's so much information. I I don't even, I don't even know where to start, but I'm just going to say a couple things about this case, about the Jeffrey Epstein and some interesting connections. As I'm sure you've heard by now, Jeffrey Epstein is a billionaire financier, some questions about how he made his fortune, but who's very politically connected. And his, t- his political connections basically helped him avoid spending the rest of his life in prison because he basically ran a sex trafficking ring out of his home, out of his mansion in Palm Beach, his mansion in New York City, and his private island in the Virgin Islands. Uh, it, he was brought up on charges in 2005, uh, 2006, yeah, 2006 or seven. And he was able to, I mean, the, the evidence was overwhelming. They found the investigators, Palm Beach County investigated they, after a 14-year-old girl complained to her parents that she'd been sexually abused by Jeffrey Epstein. And they went to the police and this broke open the case. They found one, they found two, they found three dozen. Now, that's just what they found in that investigation. And then it, it, it started to unravel. And we found out that there were dozens upon dozens upon dozens, like over 200 at least, young girls who were very vulnerable, um, runaways, abused, um, just, just young girls age around, some say 13, 14, 15, 
who were really susceptible to being abused and paid. They were lured in and paid for their services. It was either to massage him and then do sexual favors, or he set up a modeling agency in New York so he could import these young girls under the guise of a fashion career. He paid for their visas, put them up in his apartment building that he owned in New York. Yeah, but they ended up becoming sex slaves. Horrible, okay? Now, this guy has a private plane and he would take these flights all over the world and to and from his private island with very important people. They called the, they called it the Lolita Express because of all the illicit sex acts that were going on there that was well known apparently. And some of the people who who he was known to pal around with were like Prince Andrew, former President Bill Clinton, who has been on Jeffrey Epstein's plane at least 26 times. Now, there's no allegations against Bill Clinton for engaging in inappropriate sexual behavior, but I think it's important to know that they were buddies and he flew all around the world with him and has been to his private island. And now there are logs and some of the logs, they show that Bill Clinton was on the plane with others, including his Secret Service detail. So I don't think anything like crazy is going on with the Secret Service there. But there were a couple flights where Secret Service isn't logged in. I don't know why. And I don't know why the president, when Bill Clinton would ditch his Secret Service detail, I'm not aware of a former president ever doing that. So it could have just been an oversight in the logs. But, you know, Clinton knew him, hung around him. That's not, you know, it's, it's shady. Who knows? But guess who else knew him? Donald Trump. And Donald Trump knew him enough to make, uh, to, to comment about him in a New York magazine article to a profile that was done in 2002, where he said, I've known Jeff for 15 years. He's a lot of fun to be with. I've even said he likes beautiful women as much as I do. And many of them are the younger are on the younger side. That's what he said. And it, it just makes you wonder is the Epstein case just another example of a system that rewards uber rich men who have power and influence while at the expense of young, vulnerable, exploited women who are victimized. It sure as hell feels like that. Considering the first time around, the plea deal negotiated had him had them drop federal charges after they found all these girls, credible stories, consistent stories, consistent uh, fact patterns. They dropped the federal charges, get him to plead to his two state charges of soliciting prostitution. And he served 13 months in a county prison, county jail. Didn't even go to state prison, county jail. And while he was in the county jail, he was gone 12 hours a day, six days a week because he had a work release job that picked him up with a private driver and brought him to an office building in an office that he owned. What the hell kind of deal is that? You think that uh, Tyrone Johnson from the around the way would have gotten a plea deal like that? Bullshit. Who negotiated this plea deal? Well, as I'm sure you've heard by now, it is the current Secretary of Labor, Alex Acosta. He was the U.S. attorney for the Southern District of Florida at the time, negotiated the plea deal because Epstein had a super powerful legal team. And who was on that legal team? Hmm, names that sound familiar. Alan Dershowitz. The Harvard law professor, mm -hmm, who's also a Trump defender on a lot of stuff. Ken Starr, 
the former special counsel during independent counsel who prosecuted the Monica Lewinsky, Bill Clinton impeachment case. Yeah, that Ken Starr. Also another guy, last name is Leftowitz, who worked with Alex Acosta at the prestigious Washington law firm Kirkland and Ellis. And Mimi Roca and I get into this a little bit more. But this guy, Alex Acosta, negotiated the shittiest plea deal ever and so lenient, such a slap on the wrist that it really raised a lot of eyebrows to people that it was like borderline prosecutorial misconduct, how this guy got away with this. But he did. And here we are 10 years later, and he's now been arrested for sex trafficking accusations in New York because the plea deal only applied to Florida. It doesn't apply to New York. And there were plenty of acts that went on there. And Mimi gets into some of the questions about, well, how is that possible? What about double jeopardy? She, she breaks that down. That's why I brought her on. <laughs> but there are some other disturbing, well, disturbing connections about Epstein and the Russian mob and Trump that I just want to point out because I thought it was fascinating. So Jeffrey Epstein in the indictment that, that the Southern District released talks about there were uh, some employees who worked for him that helped facilitate setting up these sexual encounters with these young girls. And they also acknowledged that what helped them reopen the case was the intrepid investigation work of investigative journalist uh, Julie Brown in, at, from the Miami Herald and her team of investigators there, investigative journalists. They wrote a multi-part series called Perversion of Justice for the Miami Miami Herald back in November of 2018. And they were able to interview a lot of witnesses and a lot of victims and, and get them on the record. And it caught the attention of the Southern District. So good for them. And I just want to uh, thank these investigative journalists for their work. It just emphasizes the importance of, of a free press. But... Epstein, one of his, his, his longtime girlfriend, I think is probably one of the people that's, that's identified in this indictment. And her name is just Lane Maxwell. I'm assuming that's how it's spelled, how it's pronounced. It's spelled G H I S L A I N E. So I think that's it. Just Lane Maxwell. Now who is just Lane Maxwell? Well, she is, um, like I said, the longtime girlfriend of Epstein, but also she doubled as his madam. She was, she was in pretty important helping to arrange a lot of these, these, uh, sex romps with these young girls. And she's, she was a British socialite. She's the daughter of a publishing magnate named Robert Maxwell. Now, Robert Maxwell has a pretty shady history and um, Google him. <laughs> I'm not going to get into him other than to say that one of his biggest business partners was the boss of Russian mafia bosses. The guy's name is Simeon Mogilevich. I think that's how you spell it. Mogilevich, Mogilevich, something like that. Simeon Mogilevich. This guy was like the Don Corleone of Russian mob bosses. And he has a lot of illicit ties to all kinds of people all kinds of international rings of illicit behavior from money laundering to sex trafficking, gambling, all kinds of shit, drugs, the whole nine. They're both Ukrainian 
nationals and they established a relationship and they were in business. Now that's who Jeffrey Epstein's girlfriend is, the daughter of Robert Maxwell. And so she, they were all part, you can't tell me that they weren't part of what was going on in this Russian mob organization. Who else was, who else does the Simeon McGillivich have relationships to? Felix Sater. If you've heard that name before, that's because Felix Sater is the Russian mob informant who worked for Donald Trump for years. He was also Michael Cohen's buddy who said, we can get our guy into the White House. The Russians want to get him in the White House. Remember, there were emails about that. He's also the guy who helped facilitate the Trump Soho deal with Bayrock Capital. The financiers behind Bayrock Capital Um, uh, some of them are, I believe in jail now or under indictment. Bayrock Capital was full of illicit money and Trump Soho has gone belly up, by the way, somebody else bought it and took it over. Felix Sater, his father was a Lieutenant in Simeon McGillivich's Russian mob organization. Okay. Stay with me. So you have Jeffrey Epstein, who's running this sex trafficking ring with with uh, with these young girls. His girlfriend slash madam is the daughter of a Russian mob connected father. And guess who else McGillivich has ties to Donald Trump? Why? Because he he bought up properties and his his lieutenants were running around Trump Tower. They were also running around South Florida. And if anybody knows, there is a huge Russian mafia presence in South Florida, especially in the real estate market. Donald Trump, remember, had that property in Palm Beach that some Russian oligarch purchased for like $100 million, something like $60 million more. I forget the numbers now, but it was like something close to like $90 million or 90 something million dollars. And Trump only paid 20 something million for it or 30 million for it. Yeah, it was a Russian oligarch who came in and bought that property from him. And he made a hell of a profit. Shady to me. Well, there was in 2013, there was a Russian mob money laundering and gambling, high stakes gambling ring that was busted in Trump Tower, Trump Tower, World Tower. And guess whose Russian mafia organization it was? Yeah, it was um, Simeon McGillivich's. Mm hmm. Now, don't let Donald Trump try to tell you that he doesn't know Jeffrey Epstein because he does. He said, I've known him for 15 years. That was back in 2002. Now he's, people are going to say, oh, he was part of Mar-a-Lago because, you know, they're buddies down the Palm Beach circuit. All those guys know each other down there. And Julie Brown, who wrote the the, the, um, multi-part series for the Miami Herald, she talks about how they had dinner at each other's houses and they've flown on each other's planes and... So they knew each other and they socialized and Trump admitted it himself. But once these things started to come out, Trump started to distance himself from him. You know, who? I don't know that guy. Right. And Trump, apparently they kicked him out of Mar-a-Lago back in 1999 because he tried to solicit um, a 16 year old girl who worked there. So they kicked him out, allegedly. But that was 99. Trump was still praising him about what a fun guy he was. Terrific guy in 2002. So take that for what it's worth. There's just, it's just, some people have theories about this, this Russian connection with Epstein and his girlfriend and, and, you know, the, the whole Russian mob ties with Trump, which are lengthy. I've talked about it before with not just this guy, with others, 
but they wonder, and I wonder this too, were they offering, were they like setting them up? Some of these rich and powerful people that Epstein was rubbing shoulders with to get compromise on them so that he had leverage for whatever he needed. Is that why he got a lenient plea deal? I don't know. It's a plausible scenario. You never know. These are awful people. Who knows? That's how the Russians operate, right? That's what compromise is, getting people think, getting people in compromising situations and you can use it later on against them. Who knows? When you're dealing with billionaires and money like that and international crime organizations, who knows? But this is all open source information, folks. I'm not making any of this up. You can Google it for yourselves. It's out there. It's out there. It is a really tangled web. Another uh, interesting, just, just an interesting association, not necessarily connected to the case at hand now, but Bob Barr, our attorney general, his father hired Jeffrey Epstein as a teacher at the prestigious Dalton School in Manhattan when he was 20 years old to be a physics and math teacher. He hadn't even graduated from college, but apparently this guy was known as like some kind of math whiz. Yeah. And that's where he met Alan Greenberg, who was the head of Bear Stearns. Now, some of you may not know this, but Bear Stearns was one of the major brokerage firms that went down during the financial uh, financial collapse of 2008. But Bear Stearns did a lot of very, let's say, questionable <laughs> Questionable financial dealings that had with mafia figures and stuff during the 80s. You know, Bear Stearns wasn't exactly above board and a lot of things. But Jeffrey Epstein ended up getting a job there because he befriended Alan Greenberg's son. He was one of his students. Alan Greenberg recognized this guy was a math whiz and gave him a job and mentored him. And he turned into this amazing trader and options trader. And I guess that's how he made a lot of his money. So Epstein also managed the money of... Um, Les Wexner, who owns Victoria's Secret. So he managed his money for a long time and God knows who else is because it's very secretive how this guy made his money. But Donald Trump also did a lot of business with Alan Greenberg too and Bear Stearns back in the day when he was you know, um, running casinos and doing his stuff that he was doing in the 80s and 90s. Bear Stearns did a lot of business with him and he admits this. So there's a connection there also. Another interesting thing that I found out in this research, this is kind of an aside, but White House counsel Don McGahn, his uncle, Patty McGahn, was a lawyer for Trump for years when Trump was running casinos in Atlantic City. So there is a family connection there. I don't know how this got past me all these years, but yes, Patty McGahn, Don McGahn, former White House counsel Don McGahn, who's refusing to testify, his uncle was a lead attorney for Trump for years in Atlantic City. I'm telling you, man, it stinks the high heavens, all of it, <laughs> all of it. Well, one other thing I want to mention about, about what a piece of shit Epstein is. He, uh, it came out in the indictment that was unsealed uh, by the Southern District that he intimidated a witness's father, one of the victim's fathers, tried to run, run him off, to have him run off the road. If that's not a mafia tactic, I don't know what is, but yeah, that's one of them. And they were saying that this guy's a danger to society and he's a flight risk and all this and that. Well, that stuck with me because author Vicki Ward, she's also um, a, a journalist. She's written for Vanity Fair. I'm going to see if I can get her on the show. She uh, has a book out now about, about Jared Kushner and the corruption of his family. 
And she did a profile and she tweeted about this and I retweeted her thread. She tweeted about how she did a profile on Jeffrey Epstein back in 2003 for Vanity Fair. And in that, in doing the research for that, she came across three women who talked about their sexual romps with, um, with Epstein. Two of them were 16 year old girls. They were sisters and their mom. I don't know if their mom is involved in the sex stuff. I think her mom, their mom was just aware of it. And she wanted to include that in the profile because it was kind of, you know, murmurings about him and she thought it was important. Well, Graydon Carter, who was the longtime, very well-known Vanity Fair editor, killed that part of the story. Um, And he was concerned that it didn't really have a place in the story and they couldn't corroborate it. So, but let's not also, she also mentioned that Epstein called her and her editor, Graydon Carter, several times to get that part of the story killed. And he also said, she also said that I have the quote here that she, he asked her repeatedly during the interview, quote, what do you have on the girls? He asked her that many times. And this is 2003. So he was already well into doing whatever the hell illicit, disgusting, repugnant shit with these, with these young girls. And I guess it was out there. And he kept asking, well, what do you have on the girls? What do you have on the girls? It doesn't look very good. And Vicki Ward said that she is sick over the fact that that part of her story was killed because, you know, it was left out because she wonders how many victims there could have, she could have, could have been saved if the FBI had been alerted back then from the reporting in her story, how many women, how many young girls may have not been victimized by this bastard. And so she, she, she tweeted that out and she didn't really talk about it much. She also mentioned that she had a guard overlook overseeing her, uh, protecting her twins because Epstein asked her, where are your twins being treated? What hospital? Which he thought was really weird. And he had gotten past security at Con Nast, which is the parent company of Vanity Fair and their offices in New York. She, he'd gotten past security and gotten to the Vanity Fair offices when this story was you know, being prepared. That's nuts that she felt threat. She felt threatened enough to have to have private security to watch over her twins in the hospital. These are the people we're dealing with here. Um, unsavory characters and just the criminal justice system, I, I hope makes up for it. Southern District of New York is no joke. And this is the right place if we want to see justice done finally, finally. But let's see what Mimi Roca has to say about that. So let me bring her in. really pleased to have Mimi Roca back on Honestly Speaking because she is uh, an amazing former federal prosecutor. She spent 16 years over at the very powerful Southern District of New York. She was also in the sex crimes unit there, so she knows a bit about what she's talking about considering what's going on with Jeffrey Epstein. This case is back in the news. He was arrested over the weekend, and I couldn't think of a better person to bring on than Mimi Roca to talk about this given her experience. So, Mimi, welcome back. 
Thank you, Tara. It's so good to be back with you. So uh, we were talking a little bit off air, and I was, say- I was saying to you how rereading the details of this Jeffrey Epstein case is really, really bothering me, and it's made my blood boil um, looking at how what he got away with. Uh, you recently wrote a, a piece for the Daily Beast saying Jeffrey Epstein shouldn't expect to r- wiggle free again. Uh, explain a little bit to people about who Jeffrey Epstein is and why the most le- the, the most recent legal um, uh, well arrest, the legal case against him now is so significant. Right. So, um, you know, it's interesting you use that phrase, make your blood boil, because I, I have used that phrase in another article that I wrote a while ago about Epstein. Um, so, you know, it, it, I think it just perfectly describes how many people are feeling. Um, and I'll explain in particular why I think this arrest is so satisfying. Um, so Epstein is a billionaire. I actually have to be honest, I don't know how he made his money, um, but that's sort of side, you know, a, a side story, I think, to uh, the criminal conduct that we're talking about, which is that once he was a billionaire, he used his mansion in Florida and apparently his mansion in New York to essentially run a sex trafficking ring. He would um, use uh, other girls to um, underage girls to, um, you know, recruit other underage girls to his uh, mansions, um, you know, under the guise of come to a party at his mansion. Maybe you'll have to give him a massage or something. Um, and then these girls were essentially sexually abused and or raped, um, both by Epstein and uh, friends of his, uh, associates of his, acquaintances of his, who he would essentially, you know, give uh, these girls to. Um, and this went on in Florida, I believe, you know, roughly in the sort of 2000-2005 time frame. He was charged federally in Florida in Palm Beach um, by the U.S. Attorney's Office there, which, um, you know, is, is a big step. And so I, I think part of the sort of outrage of this case is that he was charged. He did get a conviction. However, he was allowed to plead instead of pleading to very significant federal charges that had been brought. He was allowed to plead to state charges, which essentially gave him a slap on the wrist of like a 13 month sentence, I believe. Um, You know, he registered, I think, only uh, not even as the highest level sex offender. So he got an extremely, you know, what we would call sweet deal. Um, And how he got that deal is still really a matter of great um, debate and and sort of unknowns that need to be known. Uh, The U.S. attorney at the time who agreed to this deal was someone named Jeffrey Acosta, who is now the Secretary of Labor, Federal Secretary of Labor under the Trump administration. Uh, I'm sorry, Alex That's okay. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Thank so you. let me let me just and, let me just stop you there sure. for just to kind of um, put some context into all of this. Yep. So part of the reason why, other than this case being, in my opinion, a miscarriage of justice, um, one of the most egregious examples of the justice criminal justice system not working for the victim and um, giving someone like Jeffrey Epstein, who is a billionaire with a lot of influence, an advantage that most other people, 99% of other people would never have gotten. Um, 
this guy uh, was was the, the U.S. attorney at the time is the current labor secretary under this Trump administration, Alex Acosta. And that's important to know because and Mimi, you can talk about this a little bit, too. The hoops that Alex Acosta and his office went jump through to accommodate Jeffrey Epstein after the FBI did a thorough investigation and had more than enough evidence to convict this guy and send him to federal prison for decades because the the girls that this guy was abusing and I talked about this a little a little earlier in this, in my show they were 14 and 15 years old and he preferred according to these witnesses allegedly he preferred the prepubescent kind of girls and he would use them in like a sex trafficking pyramid scheme he would use these girls to recruit other young girls and they would get paid for it and also he had a private island and he had this you know he had a private jet where he would fly to this private island and they would have you know with these friends and have parties i mean it, it, the extent of this guy's disgusting behavior is unbelievable and the fact that alex acosta went through so many hoops to accommodate uh, Epstein's defense attorneys is unlike anything I've ever heard of. But I would like you as a 16 year veteran of the Southern District of New York to talk about how unusual the level of cooperation was between Acosta, who was the U.S. attorney at the time in Florida, and Epstein's defense attorneys, who some of people, some names people might recognize, like Alan Dershowitz and Ken Starr among them. Right. That, you're absolutely right. I mean, part of what um, really needs to be looked at and, and, and gotten to the bottom of is why did Epstein get this deal? Um, it, there, the, there's a judge in Florida who now um, has essentially held in an opinion, um, well, not essentially, did hold in an opinion that the U.S. Attorney's Office in Florida violated the, the federal law, the Victims' uh, Rights Act, it, when it reached this plea deal with Epstein and did not inform the victims about it. So it, it not only didn't inform them, but actively hid the fact of this plea agreement from the victims so that they couldn't challenge it. So they basically entered into this plea deal um, regarding, you know, with the, with the state charges, allowed him to plead to those, but didn't tell the victims that the federal case was ending. So they couldn't, you know, have their day in court and they couldn't object to, wait a minute, he's only getting 13 months. That happened because uh, Acosta and his um, team of prosecutors, but under the direction of Acosta, coordinated that with these defense attorneys. And, I mean, it's hard to put into words how... um, like backwards that is, how strange that is, how out of the ordinary, how corrupt that is. Right. You know, the, the U.S. Attorney's Office is there to um, do justice and to do justice for victims in particular, especially when you have, you know, human victims in front of your face, identifiable victims who were underage. And instead of doing that, they work behind the backs of the victims. Now, I think the sort of most benign, you know, the, the quote, best explanation for why this happened is that Acosta apparently knew a lot of these defense attorneys. They had worked together at, at a law firm, um, Kirkland, Kirkland & Ellis. Ellis. And, yep. yep. For those who don't um, know, folks, and- Kirkland & Ellis is a very powerful law firm in Washington, D.C., 
carry on. <laughs> and right. And, you know, look, there are lots of U.S. attorneys who have worked with, you know, prior with defense attorneys that they now have cases with. They don't have secret, you know, sort of deals with them. Right. So so but the the best explanation I can give for Acosta, like the, the, the best light I can put it in for him is that, well, they had this you know relationship and it sort of got out of hand. You know, it was this old boys network. He had Acosta even had a meeting. I forget with which it was defense attorney, but one of Lefkowitz, yep. thank you. Yep. Um, Lefkowitz, I used to know that, uh, with <laughs> Lefkowitz, who was one of the lead defense attorneys for Epstein, at, off-site, outside of the U.S. Attorney's Office, by himself, miles. without Seven right, miles. Without, the, yep. without the rest of the prosecution team. That does not happen. The U.S. Attorney would not have a meeting with a defense attorney in an ongoing case by himself, let alone outside of the office. So that, that right there is like a huge red flag. And I keep saying that's the best explanation. The most sort of awful explanation would be that Acosta was essentially, you know, doing this in exchange for maybe the promise of a future position or even the hope of a future position um, in an administration or a Republican administration, which he got. And, you know, I, I, I don't sitting here right now, I don't want to start rumors. I don't know that that's how he got his position, but you certainly, it's yeah. certainly there's enough red flags right. that someone needs to look at it. Now you mentioned um, that, 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 you know, could there have been some kind of uh, quid pro quo? Was there, you know, a promise of something or, Hey, you know, we'll slap on the back. We'll take care of each other in the future. I mean, that happens all the time in this business, unfortunately. Um, but we don't know. However, something that's interesting about the new charges is that the office of public corruption, um, correct me if I'm wrong, is, has a role in these new charges coming out of New York. Can you talk about that a little bit? The significance right. of that? Right. So I think we haven't, what we haven't mentioned yet is that, you know, these Florida charges, there was sort of this whole, you know, debacle. Um, and then now here we are in 2019 and the Southern District of New York is, uh, has arrested and is charging Epstein with federal sex trafficking charges. We don't know exactly yet, you know, the exact nature of the charges, uh, details of the charges, but we know it's going to involve the same kind of sex trafficking conduct and focus more on his Manhattan residence because um, these are coming out of New York. The reporting is that the public corruption unit of the Southern District of New York is um, involved in, in this uh, prosecution, as well as other prosecutors outside of the public corruption unit. Um, what that tells me is that the fact that the public corruption unit is involved could mean a, a bunch of different things. And I think we're going to have to kind of wait and see a little bit, um, you know, which of these different possibilities, if any, um, come you know, to fruition. I mean, one possibility is that there is somebody who was involved in the sex trafficking ring with Epstein, who is either being investigated and or will be charged, um, who is some kind of public official. That doesn't necessarily mean, I mean, I see a lot of sort of hopeful rumors out there by people saying, oh, you know, it could be Trump. I, I don't think that that is the case, right. at least now. Even though um, Donald but, Trump you know, does know Epstein and he has been on, right. they, I mean, they've 
fellowshipped in the past. And there was an accuser who, who did uh, come out and say, a 13-year-old girl at the time, that Donald Trump uh, raped her. But nothing happened with that case. It fell apart a couple of years ago. Um, but it's still, you know, there's, there's nothing to prove that this happened. But it's still untoward thinking that, that Trump's name could even be mixed up in any of this. It's, it's, it's disgusting. But anyway, carry on. No, it, exactly. And, and that's why I think there's a lot of these rumors. But, but the fact that the public corruption union is involved means that some public official somewhere possibly could be charged either in the sex trafficking ring or the other possibility is that is, as I think you were, um, you know, indicating is that the Southern District of New York investigation could encompass not just the sex trafficking, but how did Epstein get that plea in the first place in Florida? And was there some kind of public corruption in that process? Um, That would be a good thing if the Southern District was looking at that, because I would feel that they would get to the bottom of it if there was actual corruption, you know, not just uh, sort of bad behavior, but criminal corruption in how that plea was reached. Right. And as you know, the Southern District of New York does not play around. They don't mess around with stuff like this. They have you know, that that um, U.S. attorney's office has a reputation of being tough as nails for a reason, because they've taken down plenty of high profile people in the past uh, without worrying about, um, you know, certain influences, which is why anytime you see the SDNY involved, people shiver in their boots and they should. Uh, some I have another question about the prosecution in Florida, because, you know, given, like I said, you did this for 16 years as a, as a federal prosecutor about just how unorthodox some of the things that they did. So we talked about Acosta and there was also another uh, assistant U.S. attorney who worked on this case. I think her last name was Villa Villanova or Villaneva, something like that. And um, she there are emails that she show there was an agreement between their office and the defense attorneys to try to minimize the media coverage of this, which was something else I felt was completely inappropriate. Uh, And she offered to file the charges in Miami instead of Palm Beach in order to minimize press coverage. Is that unusual? Yes. I mean, uh, that is unusual. I mean, first of all, I don't think that the U.S. Attorney's Office should be in the business of um, in my experience, they aren't and, and shouldn't be in the experience uh, in the business of filing charges at certain places to minimize or maximize media coverage. Um, you know, in general, prosec- federal prosecutors treat the media as something that's there and it's part of reality. It's part of you know life, but it is not something that federal prosecutors should sort of cater to one way or the other. And so the idea that they would be trying to protect um, a a defendant in that way is just, um, you know, wrong. I mean, it's just not what federal prosecutors should be doing. And, And it's a disservice to the victims. Again, the prosecutors are there to serve justice, the public, and that means you know, looking out for the victims. I mean, that is part of their job. And they clearly didn't do that here. And it's also in in the law. I mean, the the, the Federal Crimes Victims right. Rights Statute is designed specifically to make sure that victims of crimes like this have that opportunity so that these kinds of sweetheart deals don't go unanswered. And yet they seem to circumvent this with this non-prosecution agreement and it appears, I mean, uh, the Miami Herald 
Julie Brown over there has done, and her team have done an amazing job uh, as investigative reporters uncovering how um, how incestuous and how far-reaching and egregious this Epstein case actually is. And they talk about some of the details because they were able to access some of the victims. And she talks about last year how there was a, a suit filed uh, last December from some of these victims basically saying that, hey, our rights were violated under this statute by this non-prosecution agreement they entered into, and we deserve our... That should, that should uh, I guess, throw out the conviction before or open up an opportunity for them to find some kind of justice now. Uh, are, are you familiar with that lawsuit and, and how that applies now? And like, why 10 years, 11 years later, are they able to bring this suit? Well, so I, I, I believe you're talking about the suit that was filed in, in Palm Beach yes. um, in Florida, where the judge did actually hold in a lengthy, detailed, excellent opinion um, that, you know, the U.S. Attorney's Office had violated the Victims' uh, Rights Act in entering into that plea deal. The Department of Justice under Bill Barr recently said, and, and the judge instructed um, the parties in that lawsuit to come up with some kind of remedy that would be satisfactory. Under Bill Barr, the Department of Justice said, we are not undoing the plea agreement uh, with Epstein. And they did that recently. And not many people sort of, I think, know that. No, um, but, radar. Yeah. Um, and so that, that happened quite recently that they said, you know, we're not, we're not going to touch this. Uh, we're not going to undo this as, as, you know, we'll, we'll talk to them about some other remedy, but not that. So, you know, that makes these new charges in New York, I think, all the more important because justice is not going to be done in that Florida case for those victims. And I imagine some of the victims will be the same. Um, and even the ones, you know, in New York, um, I mean, but even the ones who are different, you know, I think it will still be incredibly satisfying for them to see Jeffrey Epstein, you know, back in um, federal court facing significant charges in a district that I do not think will let him off in some easy way. Mm -hmm. And I think for the American public who over the past three years has just repeatedly seen particularly, you know, powerful white men who have been accused of some kind of sexual misconduct or, or, or worse rape um, against women just kind of go Got free and and seem to have no accountability and, and to me that you know the Epstein case is sort of one of the few signs of the justice system working in the way that it should. Um, this new case, uh, you know, it, it, it sort of to me symbolizes that and so gives me some sort of renewed uh, hope for now. And in New York, right? It's like justice delayed is still justice served. We hope at this exactly. point because a lot yeah. of these victims are now in their late 20s or early 30s and have tried to pick the piece pick the pieces up and put their lives back together after what they endured with this guy and like I said for for those who have not read the details of the story I encourage you to check out the Miami Herald investigative uh, multi-series report that 
outlines this story. It is by Julie Brown and her, uh, Julie K. Brown and her team. It is just be prepared. It's long, but it's worth it. And um, these poor women, there's an example of one of the victims who says that, and you, you can probably speak to this since you've prosecuted cases like this before. She talks about how when she was 14 or 15, that she, to this day, still shudders at the at hearing the word pure, that that triggers her, because that's the term that Jeffrey Epstein would use in the room when he would sexually molest her, because he would say that she was so pure. And here she is, 30 years old, and she still gets triggered by hearing that word, um, because it reminds her, takes her back to the, that, those traumatic experiences. These sound, stories like that sound very credible to me from someone who's a victim because I, I just feel like that would be an awful elaborate scheme to make up. Um, but that sounds consistent with someone who's been the victim of sexual abuse. Did, did that resonate with you when you, hear, when you hear anecdotes about these stories? Because one of the things about this case is how remarkably consistent many of the victim stories were. Like women who didn't know each other, had no contact with each other, told the same stories over and over again, which was part of what made the case against him so strong. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I did read um, Julie Brown and, and her team's incredible reporting. And, and I think, you know, that like other sort of stories, not stories, but accounts that we've heard from victims um, more publicly now uh, regarding other men, like, you know, during the Kavanaugh um, hearings, uh, you know, Dr. Ford's testimony, these accounts, I think, have what prosecutors sometimes call the ring of truth, right? Because they're detailed in a way that anyone who's experienced any kind of trauma, you know, not necessarily even sexual trauma, but any kind of trauma can relate to where I couldn't tell you, you know, um, what day it was or what time of day or whether it was raining outside or, or something like that. But I can tell you sort of the important, significant events uh, of what happened in this encounter. And I can tell you some of the details about that that, that were so impactful and had the most traumatic um, impact. And so, you know, people, I remember like when Dr. Ford testified, for example, people were trying to pick apart that she didn't know exactly the day or the mm -hmm. time that, you know, but she remembered, you know, what he looked like and what he said and, and sort of what she did right before it happened. She remembered the important points because that's how trauma works on the brain. Um, and so I think when you read this reporting, uh, these accounts by the, these victims of Epstein, it's, there's a similar feel to it where, where they, a lot of the details that they remember overlap and are sort of part of the traumatic experience. And that is what makes them seem so true. It's also why prosecuting these cases is so hard. And I uh, had experience with this, as you said, repeatedly. Um, and I'm sh 
sure that the prosecutors in New York are going to be facing this to some degree. Even victims who want to come forward and want to talk, you know, they may have repressed a lot of it for a long time because you have to to survive. And then all of a sudden you're talking about it and it is hard to remember some of the details that people expect you to remember. Some victims don't see themselves as victims. They don't want to see themselves that way. And so it's sort of hard to use the terminology like I was raped as opposed to I had sex with, um, which are, you know, when you're underage, it shouldn't matter. But again, when you're talking about putting a case together for a prosecution, some of these things, um, even if you, if you often don't have willing victims at all, either because they're scared or they just can't come to terms with it. But even when you do, there, there are just enormous hurdles in uh, being able to, to prove your case. And, um, you know, I'm sure that even today that that is something that they're going to be dealing with in, in this kind of prosecution. Well, it's interesting that you bring up that it's difficult for women to sometimes even use the terminology because they don't see themselves as victims. That's exactly what E. Jean Carroll, the recent uh, accuser of President Trump, who, who accuses him of rape from back in an incident from 20 years ago, she said something similar and people scoffed at her during her interview interview with uh, CNN's Anderson Cooper. She said, I don't, I didn't consider it rape. I considered it a fight. And she said, and she was making comments that kind of made, and she said she was laughing during it to try to disempower Trump from what he was doing. But that struck, I think, a lot of people as being weird and off-putting and made her look a little loopy. But it's consistent with what you just said. That's That's how some people process it, because it's too difficult to face what actually happened to them. Um, so um, I, that's, yeah. that's a, an interesting point to apply it to something that just happened recently and how people were quick to scoff at her use of the terms, but that's the way people cope. And it's, um, the, you brought up something also about how difficult these cases are, are to prosecute because the victims can be picked apart or they're afraid of reliving the experience. During the Epstein case, one of the one of the defenses uh, one of the defenses against these women, well, girls, not women. Let me correct myself. These were young girls. Was that they were prostitutes, and the argument was, well, wait a minute. They were 14 and 15 years old, which is under the age of consent. How could they possibly be prostitutes? They were sex uh, sexual abuse victims. Um, and the other, other, I guess, for the, the non-prosecution agreement, you know, that they, the plea deal, one of the reasons they also used as an excuse for why they didn't notify the victims or their counsel was that there was a restitution part of it involved, right? <clears throat> Excuse me. There was a restitution aspect of it for 36 of the victims. And they said that if they had let them know that, then the victims could have been picked apart claiming that they were just after him for the money. They just wanted to get a, a, a payday. I, I mean, don't you think that those are really un, <laughs> just, just not credible excuses for why they behave this way? I mean, A, the, the prostitution line, I think, is just despicable. They're 14 and 15. And then B, the, the U.S. Attorney's Office trying to say the reason why that they didn't notify them about the, about the plea deal was because they were afraid they were going to be looked at as gold diggers. Come on. Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, I, I, it's hard to even... I, I, you know, sort of 
response right. to that in the right. sense that it's so, again, we go back to what is the job of a prosecutor, of a federal prosecutor? That is not their job, number one, to decide, you know, how, what a victim, I mean, it, it, I mean they should look at a victim's motivation, but clearly they believed the allegations and, and, the, and the victims or they right. wouldn't have brought the charges in right. the first place. So, you know, to then sort of shield him in this way um, from financial liability when he took a plea, you know, e- even if you look at sort of the, the cheap plea that they gave him, the, the sweetheart deal, I mean, he still admitted his guilt, and which they knew was far beyond that. It, it's just, it's not, that, that is not their job. It's not appropriate. But, but you raise the point of just an ongoing problem that um, prosecutors see and victims face in these kinds of crimes over and over. It's the, um, you know, she was a prostitute, she asked for it, and no one's going to believe her because now she's seeking, you know, money, um, which, by the way, they're entitled to also under the Victims' Rights That's Act. Right. Um, they are entitled to, you know, it's written into federal law that there is some monetary um, compensation, if you will, um, that should be given to victims of many different crimes, including this kind. So, um, you know, it, it's just a real tragedy how and travesty of justice, how that case was handled in Florida. There is an Office of Professional Responsibility investigation. Um, the Department of Justice, OPR, is, is looking at it, how that was handled. You know, I, it's unfortunate, I think, that that office is, is – I'm glad there's some official investigation, but it's unfortunate that it's that office because that office tends to do things very kind of secretly. There's not a lot of transparency, um, and they don't really have jurisdiction over current – uh, people who are not currently employees of the Department of Justice, oh, like Acosta, he's no right. longer. Right. Yeah. So they can make criminal referrals if they find conduct that rises to the level of actual criminal conduct um, or indications of it. They can make referrals, you know, to prosecutors' offices. So that that is a possibility here. But I, I really think there needs to be a full accounting, you know, either through congressional hearings, given that we're talking about Acosta, who's the head of an agency, um, or through, you know, a prosecutor's office or um, some other entity that's going to have more transparency so people can really get answers as to how this happens. So there, uh, in, in New York, <clears throat> there, uh, in, so Epstein had to register as a sex offender in Florida, but also in New York... And he did register as a class three or level three, right? That's the highest in, in New York. I think that's offered. Mm-hmm. And um, a couple years ago, his defense team tried to get that knocked down because he felt that it wasn't fair to be leveled. Uh, I mean, to be labeled a level three sex offender. The, the audacity of that is just mind blowing to me. But uh, Cyrus Vance, which is a name I'm sure you recognize and know, uh, Cyrus Vance, who is is he the is he currently um, the d- district attorney in in, in Manhattan? What was yes. his what was his title? Yes. He's still right. Currently? Yeah, he's, he's the district. Yeah, correct. So Cyrus Vance uh, did a favor for Mr. Epstein and actually advocated on his behalf to have his that that sexual um, offender categorization downgraded and he was admonished 
by Judge Ruth Pickholtz, who was the New York State Supreme Court justice at the time overseeing this case. He was admonished by her, basically saying, I have never, ever heard of a prosecutor taking this level of defense to, to, to downgrade a sexual offender with these kinds of egregious accusations against him, uh, asking for a downgrade. Can, is that, were you shocked by that with Cyrus Vance or, or what? Because that sounded to me like what, like, what is it about Jeffrey Epstein? How many high connections in high places does this guy have that all these people are bending over backwards for someone so disgusting? <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> My words. <laughs> so, yeah, no, I mean, there, there are only so many words we can use to, to describe it, right? Um, it, you know, so this is one of those things that on its face, it seems out of the ordinary, it seems unusual, it, it smells really, really bad. And again, I think, you know, there needs to be some real accounting. Cy Vance needs to explain how and why um Epstein you know, was able to have his uh, offender status downgraded because that does seem really extraordinary and all arrows point to it being done as sort of a you know favor which would be corrupt absolutely um, and he's elected I don't, way, right Cy Vance is in an elected he position. is elected yeah. and and this is going to be an issue and it um, be. you know and it should be. And and I don't know all the facts, so I'm not going to say, you know, I don't want to sit here and say that that is what happened, you know, exactly. But 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 I certainly can say that on its face, it's it looks really bad and it is something that he should have to explain as a public official, as an elected official. So as we find out, as we're, we're doing this interview now, um, I think we're waiting on some of the charges to be uh, of the case being uh, made public because we don't quite know exactly uh, the details of his latest arrest. How much do we know right now? Do we know what led to the arrest? I know he was arrested coming off of his plane at Teterboro Airport, which is a private airport where not too far from where I grew up in Jersey, about 15 minutes right down Route 17 South. It's where all the rich and famous folks fly their private jets <laughs> into uh, and out of. Um, and he was coming back from a vacation overseas and they grabbed him. What what do we know about the case now and what, what are the next steps? What should What should people be looking for? Yeah, so um, it's interesting that he was arrested on Saturday coming in from the airport. Um, you know, we'll we'll find out whether that I, I've read conflicting things so far about whether, you know, that was planned or they had to grab him because maybe they thought he got tipped off. Um, the fact that they arrested him on Saturday and simultaneously executed a search warrant at his residence in Manhattan tells me that it was probably planned and was a very smart way to sort of have this all um, go down. Um, I think that it'll be interesting to see what they did if get out of the search. You know, one important point to, to note is that a search warrant, you know, just because you're charging someone criminally does not mean you automatically get a search warrant of someone's residence. There is a very high threshold for getting a search warrant for residence. You have to show probable cause to a federal judge in a detailed affidavit by a federal agent, sworn to by a federal agent, that there is uh, probable cause to believe that there's evidence of the crime listed, which usually is also the crimes charge, in that location. And given that the 
crimes here were from, you know, a while ago, 2002 to 2005. It's interesting to me that they were able to meet that threshold and show that they have reason to believe there's still evidence there of either those crimes or some other crimes. Um, it, you know, we don't know, but, but that, that's question. something to, to watch for. Yeah. Um, it looks like now, as we're speaking, the, uh, the indictment is being made public. It's coming out. Right. And it says that the indictment lays out information about two assistants referred to as employees number two and number three who were schedulers that arranged encounters with underage girls for Epstein and that the uh, the charges against him are for sex trafficking of minors and conspiracy to commit sex trafficking of minors, including creating a network and operation enabling him to sexually exploit and abuse dozens of underage girls and paying recruiters. So for people who wonder about the double jeopardy question, because in the plea agreement mm-hmm. in Florida, he is it be, he he was immunized basically from these federal charges initially, and so are co-conspirators. So how is it that New York can do this now? Just for people who aren't familiar with the way the system works, given that it was 12, 13 years ago. Right. Um, so a couple of things. I mean, there's a couple of different issues. One issue which you raise is the double jeopardy issue, which is a legal question as to whether these charges so substantially sort of overlap or duplicate the other charges that it would violate, you know, the double jeopardy clause um, of the Constitution to, to charge him again. And that actually is I mean, I'm not saying he won't have a challenge to make about that. I'm sure he will. But I think, first of all, I have great confidence that the Southern District of New York oh, in yeah. charging this <laughs> has fully thought of that Correct. and fully thought about, you know, whether or not this violates. I mean, that is something that they are going to be very attuned to and careful sure. about. Um, and, and the double jeopardy clause is actually pretty narrow in the sense that as long as you're charging different statutes, different elements of the crime, you know, and remember, he actually only pled to a state crime. So right. there's a double jeopardy issue, at, you know, in that sense, that, that hurt him um, because it's harder to have a double jeopardy issue with new federal charges when the past charges were state charges. So, um, even there though, is so just to a, be clear, so even yeah. though he was initially indicted uh, on federal or charged on, with federal charges. Right. But that went away because the plea deal Correct. involved, okay, we're going to wipe away the federal charges and we're going to let you plead to state charges, two state charges of prostitution, by the way, which is what allowed him to get right. his 13-month sentence, which also, by the way, he served in county jail, not state prison. And anyone who knows anything about per- state prison, they don't see, they don't look too kindly upon sex offenders, especially of young girls. If anybody ever watched the HBO show Oz, you know what happens in prison. <laughs> and, right. um, and he was on work release for the majority of that time where he was allowed out of the the jail for 12 hours a day, six days a week, and went to an office, his own office, set up in Palm Beach County. It was ridiculous. So anyway, so he was, uh, so because he was um, pled to state charges, now the feds could come back in New York and charge him federally. And that does, and that does not apply. The double jeopardy doesn't apply because now we're talking about federal charges again in a different jurisdiction. That's right. I mean, I think that's essentially right. Again, he may have some arguments he can make about that, but you know, I, I don't think there's going to be a, a really significant double jeopardy issue. There's a separate issue, though, that I think is a little more um, complex, which is um, that in entering a non-prosecution agreement with the 
U.S. Attorney's Office in Florida, because even though he didn't plead the charges there, he did enter that non-prosecution agreement with them in Florida where the prosecutor's office said, we're not going to charge you anymore because you're pleading to these charges in uh, state court. Um, there is a clause in there that says we, but it's defined as the Southern District of Florida, the U.S. Attorney's Office in Florida, we will not prosecute you any further mm -hmm. for this conduct. But it's like any other contract, right? So if you and I enter a contract and it's the parties, the contract by its terms limited to you and me, uh, then then you, no one else is bound by that contract. So so by its terms, in a I have seen a prosecution agreement from Florida. It is limited to the to the Florida office. The Southern District of New York is not bound by that agreement. Again, I think he will probably challenge it on those grounds and have to make. All right, at the end of the day, he should lose that argument because of the language in the agreement. He signed with uh, the advice of about seven different excellent lawyers. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. The, the best lawyers money can buy. Um, and, you know, everyone's entitled to a, a legal defense in this country. And um, normally I'm on the side of, of prosecutors who, who are trying to do the right thing. And, hey, if you have the, the ability to have great defense attorneys, good for you. But in a case like this, given the kinds of young girls, the, the type of victims that, that were involved, you know, he preyed on, on on these girls who were runaways and who were abused, uh, you know, victims of, of domestic abuse and who couldn't speak English a lot of times. Like he just preyed on the most vulnerable girls because he knew that they didn't have that, that kind of advocacy. And that just makes it even that much more uh, egregious to me. Um, in the, we have a couple minutes left. I just wanted to ask you really quickly because I know you've had a lot of opinions about this uh, shifting gears somewhat because this Epstein case is not going away. I think he's got a lot of uh, very well-connected, famous friends who may be nervous that they will be revealed in this new filing, uh, which is what everyone's waiting with bated breath to find out. Who else could potentially be implicated? Uh, and kudos again to the media for filing FOIA requests to get a lot of this information unsealed and made public for people. So again, another reason why the free press is so important and not the enemy of the people, Mr. President. Uh, shifting gears, um, speaking of someone who's certainly not an enemy of the people, Bob Mueller. He's coming up to testify next week on Capitol Hill, long-awaited testimony. Just give me uh, what, you, what your thoughts are, kind of a preview on what you're looking to hear from Bob Mueller and what you expect. Um, well, I, it will be, um, I think, very useful. Um, you know, I think some people have unrealistic expectations for what Mueller will say or do. They're expecting him to, you know, come out and give his argument of why, you know, the president should be impeached. Um, I, I do not think that is going to happen. However, I think that Mueller will provide um, – sort of the basic facts, outlines of conduct that is in his report, which doesn't need a lot of editorializing, because if people focus on the conduct of the president as described in the report, as laid out in evidence in the report, it is in and of itself shocking and criminal. Um, 
And, you know, I think I'm hoping that the Democrats don't do themselves a disservice by sort of going off on tangents about, you know, why Mueller didn't uh, subpoena, you know, uh, certain people or whether he could or couldn't have indicted the president. I mean, all of those are interesting questions, and I'd like to know the answer, too, but they're going to have limited time. And what they should focus on is asking questions that allow the story of what's in the Mueller report to get out to the public, because so many people have just don't know still what is in there. They believe the no collusion, no obstruction mantra, and neither of those things are true. Um, if Mueller is allowed to just testify as to the basic facts in the report, people will understand that while there was no criminal Russian conspiracy charge, there certainly was um, collusion or, yes. or or whatever word you want to use yeah. there was there was coordination of of uh, some degree um, with Russia uh who attacked our elections and it was welcomed and encouraged and there was blatant obstruction of justice by Trump including asking people you know who worked with him and around him uh to lie to lie in a federal investigation. And that is, to me, as as blatant as it gets. Do you think that Mueller will actually elaborate? Because he's such a reluctant witness. You know, Bob Mueller is a straight and narrow guy. He's as straight and narrow as they come. He's a disciplined Marine. He's really been reluctant to get in in the middle of the political fray on this, which I think is why he's been so um, hands off publicly and just kind of like my report speaks for itself. And unfortunately, the American people don't have time to read a 400 plus page report. And most of them don't understand legalese. So, you know, do you think that he will to more directly answer questions about his rationale behind what's in the report? Because I'm worried that he won't. Well, I don't know that he'll say anything beyond what's in the report, but I don't think that he needs to. I mean, it would be nice if he could, yes, put it in sort of, Layman's you know, terms. more... <laughs> in terms, but, but that just may not, you know, that that isn't, as you say, how he speaks. I mean, right. he speaks how he speaks. Um, you know, I know everyone is going to want him to answer that sort of ultimate question of, would you have charged him with obstruction, charged Trump with obstruction if he weren't the president, which I and many others, you well know, former federal prosecutors have a time that, yes, we, you know, we would charge, but we would have charged him uh, with obstruction if he weren't the president. Um, but we can do that because we're not, you know, that is, that is not something that Mueller felt he could do. And I actually don't think he will do that in this hearing, right. but I think he can ex- he can he can sort of go over the highlights of the facts that lead people to that conclusion, right? He can say, if asked the right questions, he can talk about how he asked, um, how Trump asked, instructed McGahn to lie about the fact that he had tried to have Mueller fired um, in order to obstruct the investigation. He can you know, testify about specific interactions between the Trump campaign and, you know, Russia, who was trying to interfere in our election. I mean, they're, they're just, they're sort of basic 
you know, 10 facts as to each section of the report that I think he needs to get out so that people understand it. Right. Um, right. Like, did understand did the what happened? Right. Like, simple, straightforward questions. Did the president of the United States ask the White House counsel, Don McGahn, to lie about you, about him instructing him to fire Bob Mueller? I mean, to fire you. <laughs> yes or no? Right. You know? right. My concern right. is similar to yeah. yours that the, I hope the Democrats don't try to turn this into some political grandstanding opportunity and waste time not asking those direct questions. Like there was some talk of maybe having staff attorneys like they did during Watergate come out and question Bob Mueller, which I wish they would do because a lot of the staff attorneys, they understand how to question witnesses without the political grandstanding. That to me would get, would elicit the more direct answers that you would want to hear from Bob Mueller, but politicians are going to politic, you know, and I just, I'm just yeah. praying that they don't waste the four hours that we're going to get because they ain't going to get another chance. This is it. This is the, this is the, their one shot and I hope they don't blow it. Mimi Roca, I appreciate your time. You are always awesome and, and bring a, uh, a clear understanding to some of these more complex legal questions. And this Epstein case, we're going to keep an eye on. Um, the Mueller testimony, man, I tell you, July, summers used to be where we could kind of take a break from politics, and that just doesn't happen anymore. There's so, so much going on. We just never take a break. I hope you get a chance to relax on your vacation. I have a feeling that you're going to be live streaming some some kind of something, someone <laughs> listening in one ear. You just can't help it. I know I do that. <laughs> I know. I know. It's true. You can't stay away. Well, as long as you've got a nice, strong beverage in one hand, then it, it'll make it all, all that much better. <laughs> Mimi Roca, thank you so much. Former SDNY prosecutor, uh, an MSNBC legal analyst. Again, a big thank you to former SDNY prosecutor, MSNBC legal analyst, Mimi Roca, for joining the show again, talking about this crazy Epstein, Epstein case. It's, uh, oh, just makes your blood boil. But I'm hoping, hoping, hoping that justice does prevail in this case. And it looks like it's in good hands in the Southern District of New York. Well, that's it for this week's edition of Honestly Speaking. Please be sure to retweet and follow me on Instagram at the Tara Setmayer, on Twitter at honestly underscore Tara or at Tara Setmayer. If you like the show let me know what you like let's talk about it spread the word and um thank you for the support we'll do it again next week 